Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. A new investigation by the Marshall Project and the L.A. Times finds that California's conditional release program for patients leaving state psychiatric hospitals can be unusual and can put them in decades-long legal limbo during which the state dictates where they live, whether they work, and whom they can see, even requiring permission for activities like creative writing or joining a book club. Christy Thompson is a staff writer for the Marshall Project and joins us now to talk about what she uncovered. Christy Thompson, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. First, can you tell us more about California's conditional release program or CONREP as as it's called? Who does it serve? Like, what's it designed to do? Yeah, so the CONREP program oversees about 650 people in the state, and its primary goal is to watch over folks who are leaving psychiatric institutions who landed there because of serious criminal charges. And so the goal of the program is to help people transition from being institutionalized to living a free, independent life, while also trying to monitor them and make sure that they you know, don't have signs of relapse or commit any future violence. But some of the concerns that were told to me during this year-long investigation from patients, family members, even former employees, is that the program is so risk-averse that it makes it nearly impossible for people to kind of taking steps back towards independence, putting their lives together again with things like getting a job, uh, getting their own apartment, even dating, making new friends outside of the strict supervision and rules under this program. Like you mentioned in the intro, a lot of things that you and I would take for granted, like even just going to the grocery store on our own under the supervision of this program is something you might have to get explicit permission for. Yeah. Can you tell us about Venus Moore, who was committed to a state psychiatric hospital basically indefinitely in 2001? What did she do and and how did her treatment go? Sure. So, uh, It was actually in 2008 that Venus was found not guilty by reason of insanity um, for something that happened while she was off of her psychiatric medication. She stabbed a relative and was found not guilty. And that's an important thing to remember is that people on this program were found not guilty by reason of insanity and oftentimes end up spending much longer under strict legal supervision than they might have if they were found actually guilty and sentenced to prison for the things that happened. So she was found not guilty. She was uh, sent to a state psychiatric hospital and only people who are found to be responding really well to treatment, steady on their medication, doing well, are um, able to get onto the CONREP program. Um, And so she first came out in 2012. Um, In 2015, she was re-hospitalized, which we find is very common. It's very, uh, very common that people on CONREP might be sent back to the hospital after even years of living in the community, uh, sometimes for very small violations of program rules. And then in 2019, late early 2020, while the pandemic was raging, you know, her family had a safe place for her to live, but she had to live locked inside this residential care home for seniors. She couldn't have a job. She had to live on social security. 
And what was interesting to us about her story was that in um, last winter, a judge actually did something very unusual and intervened and took her off of the CONREP program before he actually did what's called re restoring her to sanity, which is finding that she can be free of all legal supervision. But the judge basically said, you know, you don't need to be under this strict supervision anymore. You can live in your own apartment. You can get mental health care in the community. And she did that for about six months. And according to a psychologist report, it went very well. She was doing very well in the community, being able to, you know, get her own mental health care on her own and living, you know, living with family and living a more independent life. And then this, this summer, right before we published our story, she was fully restored. And that was about 13 years after she was found not guilty by reason of insanity. And, you know, had she been sentenced to prison, that whole process, she might've been free in about seven years and gone back to living an independent life. So you're saying that if she had not pled an insanity defense, she would have had spent less time in prison than having pled this and then being in this 13-year situation where it says it sounds like, where you say it sounds like a judge intervened, which is a very unique kind of situation. Um, just a couple of follow-ups to what you were saying. You say it's common for people to end up going back into the hospital. What do you mean by common? Like what proportion of people does this happen to? I don't have the data in front of me right now, but it is it is not unusual for people to be rehospitalized, and that's something that's really interesting because you can kind of get stuck in this cycle of hospitalization. You know, you are on CONREP, and then you get released, and you know sometimes people are rehospitalized because there's a very serious uh, destabilization or a return of psychiatric symptoms, but sometimes people are rehospitalized for much lesser things, maybe um, having one. Uh, dirty drug test or breaking program rules. And what I found in uh, anecdotally talking to a lot of people is that when you're rehospitalized, sometimes you can end, end up back in the hospital for years. You sort of have to start this process all over again of re-earning your freedom. Um, and the time on CONREP is indefinite. Uh, so, you know, you get back into the program and you're sort of right where you left off. So it can really be this cyclical thing for folks. And overall, I mean, even outside of California, I think what's interesting and important about programs like this is that it just highlights the way that people who have serious mental illness in the system, it can be so much harder for them to get free of court legal control uh, than it might be for someone who's even just in our regular criminal justice system who maybe isn't diagnosed with a serious mental illness. Well, I want to give our listeners a chance if they want to share their reactions to what they're hearing to call in at 866-733-6786, email us forum at kqed.org or post thoughts on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Perhaps you're familiar with this program. You or someone you know has been part of California's CONREP program and have some thoughts you'd like to share as well. So, Christy Thompson, you spoke with a former CONREP psychologist named Catherine Barrett, who left the program. What did Catherine tell you about why she left? Yeah, I think, you know, both Catherine and also some other people that I spoke with talked about the really difficult position that therapists are put in, because we think of therapy as a space for you to be honest about your fears and your concerns and your anxieties. But also these people have a lot of authority over you. Something you tell them could be used to send you back to the hospital or to lose a privilege that you had worked so hard to earn. And so some people, both patients and therapists alike, really struggled with that dynamic. And other people I spoke to, both Catherine and other former employees, 
said that sometimes they felt like there was, because there's such a concern about someone, you know, getting released too soon or someone recommitting future violence, the program is so inherently deeply risk averse that it felt really hard to, even when they saw someone doing really well, putting into a lot of effort to try and rebuild their lives, that there was a lot of resistance to moving people onto lower levels of supervision and stepping up their independence and their freedom. And that's why Catherine left. And that's something that some other people spoke to, spoke about as well. You also mentioned that at the beginning, most of these programs were county run, but now for-profit companies are running more of them, or at least 11 of the 20 in California. Why did that shift happen? Yeah, so at the beginning, I mean, this program has been around since the mid-1980s, and early on, they were mostly run by county-run agencies. What some people told me and what I saw written in some documents is that around 2014, the state changed the way that they were funding the program uh, in a way that made it harder for maybe, you know, some cash-strapped county budgets to cover all of the overhead costs needed for such a complicated, in-depth program as this. And so that's when one company, MHM, um, which is a corporation based in Virginia, it makes a lot of its money providing mental health care in jails and prisons across the country. Uh, they took over a lot of counties in 2014. And one of the questions we had was trying to figure out what kind of impact Impact this privatization might be having on the kind of care that people are receiving or the outcomes for people on the program. And unfortunately, a lot of the data that we would have looked at for that uh, was is private because of health privacy laws. The numbers are too small for them to be able to tell us what it is. So we, we can't know for sure what impact this is having. But we definitely heard a lot of concerns from clinicians or people who study privatization about inherently what impact it has on the kind of care that people get or the decision-making process when there is a profit motive involved, that these, are, that these are companies that are trying to make money off of providing these services. And that they're a little bit more abstracted from the community that they're serving, that they're a corporation rather than you know, your own county mental health agency. Well, were you able to get a sense at least of why or how the state justifies the difference in the way that it handles people leaving psychiatric hospitals versus, say, people leaving prisons. As, as you were saying earlier, Venus Moore, for example, may not have had this arduous 13-year you know, situation had she not um, pleaded insanity. Yeah, the, um, the state says that you know their number one priority is public safety, and this came up over and over again, that their primary goal is just to ensure that, that there is no future violence committed or that someone, you know, both for the sake of the patient and for a potential future victim, that there isn't, you know, a psychiatric decompensation that could lead to something happening in the future. And, and they really measure their success based on their recidivism rates, how many people are rearrested once they're released under the supervision of this program. And it's very low. I mean, they didn't provide the actual underlying data, but they, they claim that it's as low as 3% of people on this program are rearrested after one year in the program. But the question that came up in a lot of our interviews is uh, what, what about some of these other factors about looking at what how successful a program is? How many people on this program are able to get jobs, are able to reunite with their family, are able to live independently, maybe have a relationship? That, that those kind of metrics haven't been really been looked at. How long are people staying in this program? No one's really looking at those metrics about how effective they are in really providing holistic mental health care. And something that more nationally came up is that there is a real public and political deep 
nervousness and, and risk aversion when it comes to people who commit crimes because of a mental illness and that it's even greater than maybe our nervousness and uncomfortableness with someone who commits a crime not because of a mental illness. And that oftentimes that that risk aversion, that greater risk aversion is not necessarily based on data, not necessarily based on a greater risk of violence, but rather our sort of political understanding and sense of mental illness and, and people's unpredictability. You're talking about bias here, bias against people with mental illness playing a role. Yeah, I think sort of the just the the vast difference in how we treat people who are deemed quote unquote criminally insane versus someone who might be committing a crime. Um, not because of a mental illness and how differently we treat those two systems and whether that is based on research and data or if that's based on also a little bit of the, the public nervousness around cases like this. You also cited that um, there was an extreme case that prompted lawmakers to create these more stringent uh, supervision guidelines. You referenced that uh, that the system was sort of in the wake of, of a crime where a man convicted of sex offenses murdered a toddler weeks after getting out of a state prison. What role do you feel like that played? And do you feel like we're still sort of operating on that too? Right. So that was a case from the late 1970s that when I spoke to people who were involved in creating this CONREP program said it was this case and cases like that, that sort of extreme, I mean, the most awful case that you can think of that really spurred the statewide effort to create this more statewide stringent um, standardized system of supervision. And that those, you know, violent sexual related offenses were a really big part of those early conversations in shaping this program. But then it's important to remember that most of the cases that, that people are handling with, certainly some involved violence, but most of them were not these kind of extreme, you know, sex related violent cases. And so it, those kind of extreme cases are what shape the policy, but then those policies are playing out for people who maybe had very different of different offenses, different charges, much lower level crimes. So, and I think what we were really interested in this story is that there is a very real concern for public safety. And it's a really difficult, you know, maybe impossible balance and tension, which is, you know, how do we as a community, as a public want to balance this real concern for public safety, but also concern for the liberties and rights of people who have serious mental illness, who might have done something violent in the past, but then put a lot of work into stabilize since then. And I think that's a question we've been asking in the criminal justice context in the last year, when there's been a real reckoning over our prison system, our sentencing. And I don't think those questions are being asked as often in the mental health care system, but I think they're starting to be. We're talking with Christy Thompson, a staff writer for the Marshall Project, about her new investigation into California's conditional release program for people leaving state psychiatric hospitals. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This listener writes, for people leaving prison who have diagnosed mental health issues, is there a similar state supervisory program? So some people who are leaving prison who have a serious mental illness can actually also end up in CONREP through um, something called the Mentally Disordered Offender Program. So there are extreme instances in which someone who has a serious mental illness who served time in prison and then a court decides, you know, we still don't feel safe letting this person this person out of supervision and they might get committed to a hospital and then put onto the CONREP program. So that's why it's not just people found not guilty by reason of insanity, but rather anyone who's sort of in this mental health criminal justice system who has this diagnosis, it can be a lot harder for them to uh, 
to get out from under court control. But there is also sort of the flip side, which is that if you go through the criminal justice system, you're not deemed one of these serious concerned offenders. There's actually a huge dearth of, of mental health care and support for people coming out of that system who might need therapy, who might need access to psychiatric medication. That can be a real struggle for folks who are leaving the prison system. Are you seeing signs that the state is realizing or, or considering the fact that maybe the CONREP's like potentially overly onerous restrictions could be setting people up to fail or may not be as helpful as they thought? Well, something interesting that's happened recently is in 2020, the state released its first uh, strategic plan for the CONREP program, trying to really do a deep dive evaluation of how the program is running. And some of the things that that evaluation and that strategic plan raised is needing more communication between staff members in the hospital and the people who work for the CONREP agencies, involving family members more in people's treatment and, and having more of an open line of communication with them and doing better data tracking on some of these issues about whether people are getting out of the hospital and into the community in a timely way. So it's definitely something that's happening. Um, and I've spoke with you know, family members or advocates who are concerned that maybe that strategic plan doesn't go far enough, but there's definitely a lot of these questions are being asked right now. Well, can you tell us about Venus Moore's situation now? How's Venus doing? Sure. So as I might have mentioned earlier, you know, the unusual thing that happened in her case is that this this winter, she was taken off the CONREP program a few months before she was actually, quote unquote, restored. And then she, in June, was fully restored to sanity. She was uh, fully freed from legal supervision. She has her own apartment for the first time in 20 years. She's babysitting her one-year-old grandson. She's been able to access mental health care in the community down the street from her, spent a lot of time reconnecting with family. She's enrolled in community college classes right now. So a lot of things that... Um, you know, she'd been wanting to do sort of these steps towards a more independent life that were harder, if not impossible for her to do under the CONREP program. And something she said to me that really struck me was this idea that, you know, oh, if I sleep in one day, it's not going to be construed like I'm depressed. I think what's also interesting to me about this system is mental illness and symptoms of mental illness can be so subjective, right? What seems like a unreasonable level of anxiety over a bed bug infestation. If someone has a diagnosis, that could be seen as pathological, whereas if it was just me who has bed bugs, then maybe that's not seen as concerning. So this idea that when you're in this system, even kind of common things, people are just always sort of examining them and, and looking to pathologize them. And that was interesting to me of, of what it's been like for her since she's been restored as not having to have that concern. And your hope for Californians what they'll come away with from your investigation? Because I'll be honest, I knew very little about the existence of this program. Well, that makes two of us. Uh, I, I started looking into this program a year ago uh, when I was looking at how psychiatric institutions were responding to COVID-19. And it was a patient there who said, you should really look into what happens with people after people leave the hospital. And I found this whole system that I had never read about, never knew about, this whole kind of other parole probation system for the mental health care system. I think what I want readers to take away is to be sort of asking, you know, where do we want the balance to be between a concern for public safety and the rights of people who might have a diagnosed mental illness, and also be asking a lot of the same questions about our mental health care system mm. that a lot of readers have been asking about the criminal justice system. Well, thank you, Christy Thompson. Thanks for listening to Forum.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis from KQED Podcasts comes on our watch season two. New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.